Father in heaven, I ask that you would bless, that the words that I speak would be accurate and faithful and true in pointing people to your word. And I pray that you would bless and encourage and strengthen and convict and move us closer to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. One announcement, somebody so kind and gave me a piece of paper so I didn't forget, and then I left the piece of paper like 10 feet away and forgot. Uh, So our WANA program has faithfully gone on the whole year. We've been teaching our kids how to memorize the Word of God, and they've been learning things from the Bible and having a ton of fun, and we have a little award ceremony that is going to be June 9th. June 9th at 6.30 p.m. here at the church. Uh, So it'll just be a way to celebrate all of the hard work that the kids have done, and you'll get to see them uh, sing some songs and hear from our leaders a little bit and want to welcome you and invite you to that June 6th. Doesn't matter if you've got kids in the program or not, uh, we would love for our kids to know how much they are loved deeply by this church, and just being here be a great way to show them your support and your love. So that's June 9th at 6.30. Um, I, I also neglected to mention I have books, uh, which is usually true, uh, and I remembered to bring them into this room, so they're extra accessible today. I mentioned a couple in my sermon about two weeks ago, and people have continued to come forward and say, hey, do you have any more copies of those? Yes, I do. Uh, these are the last two that I've got available, and then I've got a couple of books that, if the sermon I preach today speaks to your heart, and you thought, man, I'd like to think and meditate on this a little bit more. Uh, I've got a look, little book by Tim Keller. Most of the church read it a couple of years ago. This book would be awesome for you. And so if you want something to go deeper, to read a little bit more, to meditate on these things, come see me after service, and, and I'll help you with that. As we approach the word, I want to do a scripture reading from the book of Galatians before we turn to 1 Timothy. So I want to invite you, if you've got a paper Bible, or if you use your phone, go to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. It's a little bit of a small book, and, and one of the nice things about small books is they're easy to read the whole thing, and you're like, man, I just read a whole book of the Bible. One of the bad things about small books is, man, they're hard to find. So find Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are a little larger. Keep going closer to the end. If you reach Ephesians, you've gone too far. Scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses and ask... If something jumps out at you, maybe underline it. Try hard to remember it for the, for the bulk of this message today. Galatians chapter 3. Paul begins uh, with some unkind words in some ways. He says, oh foolish Galatians. Man, can you imagine just being in the church and being like, Paul just called us foolish. He says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, 
Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through faith. Through belief. Through trusting that what God said is true and acting out on that truth. Now, this morning, I am preaching a text from 1 Timothy. But I want to ask that you would keep what we've read in Galatians in mind. That the main point in Galatians is that God's good news to everyone here and to every person all around the world is that he forgives our sins. All of the ways that we have not kept the law, God freely forgives them by faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Those are the blessings that Paul is talking about that go to the entire world. We are forgiven and given the Spirit of God to live in us when we hear the good news of Jesus and believe it, agreeing that it's true, resting in it, Paul says that moment of faith comes as we hear the word of God with faith. That's why I spend so much time just reading the scripture. That's why we devote time to explaining the scripture. Because salvation comes when you hear it and believe it. And you cannot believe it unless you hear it. And so we devote a lot of time to reading scripture and to explaining what it means. If faith is hard for you, and I would say it is hard for everyone at different points of their life, then I would encourage you to pray the prayer of one dad in the Bible, a dad who came to Jesus needing help for his little boy, and Jesus said to him, all things are possible if you believe, and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Chris mentioned a moment ago, maybe you're here or watching online and you're not totally settled about what you believe with Jesus. I would encourage you, or even if you're a believer and you're wrestling with some doubt, many believers wrestle with doubt, pray that prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and God will help you. This passage in Galatians is all about saving faith, believing in the word of God. You don't follow God's laws and God's rules to try to please God. Because if you rely on your own obedience, you will die. But by faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and adopted into God's family and God's spirit comes and lives within you. 
And I picked this passage in Galatians because it complements our text in 1 Timothy perfectly. And one of the things that I love to show as a pastor is the unity of the whole Bible. There's no one part that contradicts another part. It complements in absolute perfect beauty. So in our text in 1 Timothy, and you can turn there with me, it's a little bit further on in the New Testament, going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul has already said to Timothy that it's his job as a faithful pastor to guard the truth of the gospel. And Paul says in our text today that the law is good if it's used lawfully. And he's talking especially about the Ten Commandments, and I'll show you why I say that in a minute. But you can just kind of write in the margins, the law means all of the rules that you would read in the Old Testament. And Paul says those rules are good if you use them lawfully, but they are deeply harmful if you use them in a wrong way. And Paul makes it very clear in Galatians, one of the ways that we can use the law wrongly, namely, when we try to please God by our works and by our rituals instead of by faith in Jesus. The radical message of the entire Bible is that God loves guilty people. Not the people that have it together that get it right, the people who have messed up and gotten it wrong. God loves them anyway. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 John, the Lord says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. And not only did the death of Jesus prove God's love, but the life of Jesus proved it. Friends, if you're not familiar with Jesus' life, I would strongly encourage you, read the Gospel of Luke. You will find a friend of sinners. In fact, one of the accusations leveled against him by his enemies was that he spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes. But he not only loved sinners... He loved Pharisees like Nicodemus, the stereotypical religious guy that managed to do everything right on the outside. And he loved women like the woman at the well who had been divorced five times and was living with a man who was not her husband. Jesus didn't avoid people because of their reputation. He loved them in their sin and forgave them and called them out of it. Jesus, in his own words, said that his mission was to seek and save the lost. And he sought them because if he did not go looking, they would never be found. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is in Luke's gospel. And Jesus describes himself as a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep safe in the fold to go find the lost sheep. And when he returns, there is rejoicing. And Jesus said, there is more rejoicing over one sinner who repents in heaven than the 99 who stayed in the fold. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. God is the one who makes the first move in rescuing sinners who are content and happy in their own sin. And so friends, I want to remind you 
of the love of God because today's passage lists some sins. And when we read it, we're probably going to have a few different reactions. If you're not a believer, you might think, man, these Christians are a bunch of hate-filled people, putting down people who are different from them. They're so full of judgment. Or you might look through the list and review your life and think, oh, good. I don't think I've done any of those. I think I'm okay. Or perhaps you'll even look at the list And maybe you'll be guilty of the kind of judgment that I just described. Maybe you'll look through this and think, you know, what's wrong with the world today is that we have ignored God's laws. And in sort of judgment, you'll be implying that you haven't ignored them. If everybody else could just be a little bit more like you, we'd be okay. And if you do any of those things with this list in 1 Timothy, you are missing the whole point of what God is saying in his word. The point is, we are part of this list. All of us are sinners. Paul has told Timothy to guard the gospel, to guard the good news that God wants announced to the entire world. He's told him to faithfully announce God's love and grace and to prevent people from within the church from perverting the message of grace. And he warns that certain people had wanted to teach the law, but they didn't understand it. They were devoted to myths and endless controversies. And today, we're going to look more at what he meant and why it matters for us. So here is my message in two nutshells. I'm sorry, I couldn't fit it in one, so I've got two separate nutshells. Number one, God's rules show our sin and need for forgiveness. Okay, I'm going to say that again. God's rules show our sin and need for forgiveness. That's nutshell number one. Nutshell number two is our sin and need for forgiveness Show us the glory of God's mercy and love. Number two, our sin and need for forgiveness show us the glory of God's mercy and love. And so to begin with, let's look at the goodness of the law. Okay, the goodness of the law. We're just going to look at verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1 for a minute. Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Stop right there. Do we know that? Are we persuaded of that? Or do we tend to think of the law as harsh and oppressive and Jesus Christ is the good person who comes and is kind and merciful? Paul wouldn't agree with that statement. He would certainly agree that Jesus Christ is the one who comes and is kind and merciful, but he also maintains that the law itself is good. That we ought not think of it as oppressive, unkind rules that are mean to people. But instead, that the law is good. So the question becomes, what does he mean when he qualifies that by saying, if used lawfully? What is a lawful use of the law? Well, the next verse helps us a lot. But before we get there, we need to talk about how we react to the law a little bit. Paul is talking about the Ten Commandments and the laws that explain the Ten Commandments and go with them and all the rules of the Old Testament. 
Jesus also taught all about these rules. There's a very famous sermon that Jesus preached, sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. You can read it in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And if you keep the Ten Commandments in mind as you read it, you're blown away by how Jesus had meditated on the law and how he's explaining it and applying it with great clarity. And so Jesus is devoted to this law and teaching it. And yet there are a lot of people who respond to the law by saying it's outdated and oppressive and unfair and inadequate. So if that's you, I would pause and encourage you to remember that in the Old Testament, God summed up his own law this way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You might think that's found in the New Testament, and it is, but it's Jesus quoting the words of Deuteronomy, showing that the law has always been about love, love of God and love of neighbor. And so a right use of the law produces love, not pride or despair. Faithful teachers within the church will guard the right use of the law. They're not going to lead people to despair who fail to keep the law, which really is everyone. And they're also not going to ignore what it says and leave people in their sin. The problem is, when we go through the laws of the Old Testament and New Testament, many times we don't agree with what God has said. Some of them seem okay and wise, and some of them seem unfair, and some of them seem deeply offensive to people today. And so, raising this issue, the fact that sometimes God's law seems unfair... I want to ask you to ponder a question. Who are speed limit signs for? Okay, everybody who drove here today passed one. Who are speed limit signs for? When I was learning to drive and my brother was learning to drive, my grandma Johnson said to us, a speed limit does not mean that you have to drive that fast. You can go slower. And we looked at her like she had two heads and thought, why would you? But that was how Grandma Johnson drove. Speed limit signs are not for her. I asked last Wednesday, my morning prayer group, what the dumbest thing they had ever done in a car was. And friends, speed limit signs are for Clay Buck. You guys know Fish Lake Road, just south of town here. You know where Fish Lake, south of Grange Hall, has that kind of insane dip? I remember the first time I went through that insane dip, because you know the yellow signs that give you caution? They're not speed limit signs. They're just like, hey, if you drive the speed limit, this could get a little dicey. Well, so many of them are total lies, like, like the yellow caution signs that go through the S-curves here on North Holly. Like, you don't have to slow down that much there. But the one on Fish Lake means it. And I ignored that little yellow caution sign like I always do, or did. And I nearly went off the road because that dip is so crazy. You go way too fast. Friends, Clay Buck used to do that at 
70 to 80 to 90 miles an hour. And his goal, he said what he wanted to do, every time he did that, and he said he did it all the time, he wanted to see how much distance he could cover without the car touching the ground. And then he started talking about motorcycles. I asked him, I said, what's the fastest you've ever gone on a bike? And he said, oh, I don't know. The speedometer only went to 120. <laughs> but you could wrap it around until the needle bumped against the peg at the beginning of the speedometer. And Virgil was sitting with us, and he goes, you did that? And Clay said, oh, every day I rode my bike. So... Locally here, you guys know the S-curves, not on North Holly, but on South Holly that go into Fenton. There are some people that, that don't believe Clay when he says this, but I'm just going to report what he said, and you can judge for yourself whether or not it's true. Clay said on his motorcycle, he used to take those curves at 100 miles an hour on the center line. Clay said he always drove on the double yellow line because he said, quote, I'm not saying this, quote, he said this, he said, I was a fool, but I wasn't totally stupid. Said if somebody was doing 40 while he was doing 100 and he came up behind them, even going the same direction, it still would have been a 60 mile an hour impact. So if cars were going both ways and he was in the middle, he figured he'd just pass between them. To go that fast around those curves, he had to lay the bike almost completely on its side. And the last time he ever did it, he said somebody was backing out of their driveway, and his head, which did not have a helmet on it, was about this far from the bumper of the car that was backing out. And he said, it, it wasn't their fault. You don't expect somebody to be coming around those curves at 100 miles an hour, so I wasn't there when he looked. He survived that, narrowly missed it, and then going around the next curve, when you tip a bike over on its side, they don't put tread on the side of the tire, Right? And so he said his rear tire almost slid out from under him, and he was planning, like, how am I going to wreck this bike? You know, are we going to make it over that fence? And, and by the grace of God, he's with us today. He survived all of this. Sold his bike the next day, right? Put it up for sale the next day. The tire caught, and he was able to bring it back. And, and then as soon as the danger was over, he was like, man, that was the coolest thing I've ever done. Friends, speed limit signs are for people like Clay Buck. And you might ask the question, okay, what good do they do? Because obviously he ignored them. What's the point? Either you're going to be safe like Grandma Johnson or a lunatic like Clay Buck. Why bother putting a sign there? Well, there are three possibilities for what a speed limit sign will do. Number one, they will teach some people to avoid terrible consequences. Okay, so they will teach some people to avoid terrible consequences. Uh, I was actually in youth group when a 16-year-old kid got killed going around those S-curves. Uh, he, he was driving, he wasn't driving, he was actually riding in the passenger seat in a Camaro, and he got thrown out of the Camaro and died at 16. And a speed limit sign can show, hey, it's not safe to be driving 100 miles an hour here. If you follow this law, you will avoid terrible consequences. And I can trust that in general, 
Speed limit signs are a pretty good indicator of how to be a safe driver, even in places that you're not familiar with, that you don't know very well. So number one, they teach some people to avoid terrible consequences. And by the grace of God, Clay never reaped any terrible consequences from the stuff he did. But he did eventually learn that it was better to slow down. He, he, he sold his bike and didn't buy another one until he was in his 50s, when he could keep it under 100 most of the time. Number two, speed limit signs reveal a clear standard for justice. Speed limit signs reveal a clear standard for justice. Many people break the law, and for a while, they will get away with it. But very often, if you've ever seen those little red lights in your rearview mirror, the law will be enforced with increasing levels of severity for repeated offenders and for serious offenses. So there are traffic fines. There's impoundment. There's jail. And for some people, and this is where I would make this even more spiritual, there is a delayed judgment where you may escape human consequences for your entire life. And yet there will come a time when God will hold us accountable for every law we've broken, for every sign that we have ignored. And so the sign that you have seen reveals a clear standard for justice. No one is going to argue about whether or not the standard was there, even if you didn't like it and ignored it. Number three, and this is most important, friends. I want you to know this and be able to repeat it and to love it and it to go deep into your soul. Number three, clear indications of the law, whether it's a speed limit sign, which in some sense is almost trivial, or whether it's the Ten Commandments and the entire Bible, clear indications of the law make the greatness of Jesus and his grace known. Clear indications of the law make the greatness of Jesus and his grace known. How do they do that? Number one, because Jesus kept every law perfectly. He never had a lustful thought towards a woman in his life. He never told a lie. Not once. He never coveted something someone else had. Ever. He never lost his temper. Now, there's clear indications that he was righteously angry. That's not what I'm talking about. He never lost his temper and sinned in anger. So the law helps us understand the greatness of Jesus Christ, and it helps us understand his grace in the million ways that all of us have broken the law, and he loves us anyway. Our reactions to the law, say far more about us than they do about God. So my email this past week, and by the way, if you don't get emails from the church, let me know. They're, they're a good way to stay in touch. You can get a little bulletin for the service. In my email, I popped a picture of a road sign that had five of the Ten Commandments on it. No idea if there was another road sign that had the other five, or I, I don't know. But in really archaic lettering, it just announced the laws of God for anyone that was driving by on the highway. And I asked, what, what were your reactions to this? Because some people would read it and think, man, those Christians, 
They're just the worst. They're always condemning people. They're always reminding us of these things. Some people, in fact, a couple people that replied said, man, I am so thankful that the law of God doesn't just say no, but it teaches you how to obey and, and the right and the good and the beautiful things that come along with those commandments. Somebody else said that they would have just been thankful driving by, maybe that there was a testimony that, that the law of God is real and there. Maybe it would have been a reminder of grace. But the question that we have to wrestle with, and we're about to read this list that you'll see in a minute gets kind of dicey. The question is, what do you do when the word of God reveals laws that perhaps you don't like? A lot of people want to believe that there's no such thing as sin or law. In fact, most people do not believe in a message of come as you are and be saved. Most people believe in a message of stay as you are, you're beautiful. Many today preach a false gospel of self-improvement where there's no sin and no need for the blood of Jesus. We just need better habits and to correct our poor self-image. And if we could only do those things, we would have all of our dreams. But the law of God says our problem is deeper than that. That we need something as radical as the blood of Jesus to cover over our sins. And many times, we are devoted to sins and commit them blissfully, without pangs of guilt. And when we do that, the word of God says we are headed for destruction. Paul in Romans 7 said he didn't know what coveting was until the law told him, thou shalt not covet. And when he found that the law gave him a command, immediately he could not stop breaking it. It awoke in him a desire to sin that he said he was totally unaware of before the law revealed it to him. And friends, I want to say to you that we don't know what sin is until we're told to stop sinning and we discover that we can't. And so... My first point is that the law is good. My second point is that the law teaches our hearts to fear. Remember that line from Amazing Grace? It's in verse 2. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. That's what this is doing. And so I want to invite you to read verses 9 and 10 with me and demonstrate Paul's summary of the law and see how it hits you. Paul says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now pause for a second. I've kind of committed a little bit of a hate crime there, right? Before we look at anything in detail, I want to remind you of the Ten Commandments, divided into two parts. The first half is focused on God and worshiping the Lord. The second half is focused on your neighbor and what it means to love your neighbor. And this list is a perfect reflection of the Ten Commandments. 
Think about it for just a moment. Paul says that the law is really for ungodly and sinners, and then he outlines what it means to be ungodly and sinful. So he mentions the unholy and profane. Well, what does it mean to be unholy and profane? It means you are not set apart to worship the Lord your God. The first commandment is love the Lord your God. It is have no other gods before me. Being devoted to the worship of the one true God is what it means to be holy. The second commandment is to not make images to be used in the worship of God, meaning you don't make up your own way to worship God. You worship God as he tells you to. Then he describes not using his name in vain, and he describes honoring the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In other words, setting aside specific time for rest and worship. Friends, if we are holy, we devote ourselves to the worship of the one true God. We are unholy and ungodly when we neglect worship of the one true God. Many people today don't think that it's wrong to just never go to church. They say, you know, I just worship God in my own ways. I worship God on the golf course or on the lake, and and I'm not knocking that or judging that or saying that it's wrong except to say this. You must worship the Lord the way the Lord instructs you to worship. So don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. The Lord commands us to gather. The Lord commands us to be a body of believers. You can't do that if you never see the people that you claim you're part of the body with. And so these first commandments, for some people, don't even register as sinful. And the law comes along and says, this is what God requires of you. Be faithful in worship. Seek holiness. Don't be an idolater. Don't put something in the place of God. Even if it's a good thing, like your kids, don't put something in the place of God. With your heart, seek the Lord first. And so the first two things he mentions, unholy and profane, are describing really the first four commandments. Then he says, those who strike fathers and mothers, that is a direct reference to the commandment to honor your father and mother. You're not honoring them if you're beating them, right? So he's using an extreme example, but going straight through the list. Murderers, what's the next commandment? Do not murder. Then he mentions sexual immorality and homosexuality. That's a direct breaking of the commandment Do not commit adultery. And Paul is helping us understand that commandment is not just for married people. That commandment is for sexual purity in every stage of life. And it prohibits every sexual expression outside of marriage. Whether you are single or whether you are seeking to be in a romantic relationship and committing acts of impurity. He says the sexually immoral, that's really vague. It means having a sexuality that is not defined within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's what Jesus teaches. It's what the Old Testament teaches. All throughout the New Testament, it affirms the morality of do not commit adultery being very broadly applied. Probably the least popular command in all of the Bible today. You can drive through downtown Holly and see signs that say, I believe love is love. 
And what they mean by that is God has no business telling me who I can and can't love on the basis of gender. And friends, that's driving 100 miles an hour through an S-curve that's meant to be doing 25 on. And many people today feel like the sign is stupid and they have no idea of how deeply destructive and dangerous their behavior is and how it's an affront to a holy God who loves them, who wants better for them. So the problem is not the law. The problem is not the rule. The problem is that we've hardened our hearts to God's goodness and we're ignoring what he says. And Paul says, the whole reason we announce this rule that's deeply offensive is not to pretend like we're better. The whole reason we're talking about it is we're praying by the grace of God that God will open someone's eyes to their need. Now, maybe you don't struggle with same-sex attraction at all. Let me ask, how are you doing on the rest of the list? Because some of the things that he mentions are almost, we would say, insignificant. Is it a big deal to miss church? I don't know. It depends. Where's your heart? Are you faithfully devoted to worshiping with believers? Are you submitting to the leadership and authority of your local church in your life? Or are you the captain of your fate, the guardian of your soul, doing what you think is right? Paul describes worship as being one of the things that helps us know if we're keeping the law of God or not. Then he gets on to, to, to enslavers. You might say, how's that connected to the Ten Commandments? Well, do not steal. Do not steal people. Do not steal their labor. Do not steal their time. He mentions liars and perjurers. That, that one's easy. Do not lie. Do not bear false witness, either in public and court or in private. And then he says very broadly, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So he gives us this giant list and says, this list is not for people who are trying to follow God and be holy. This list is for the ungodly and sinners. Some of these we agree with without a problem. Some of them make us angry like a speed limit sign that we think doesn't make sense. And here's the thing, we need to be taught to fear because we don't naturally fear breaking God's law. Very often when we hear a rule or a command, we are likely to dismiss it and say, that doesn't apply to me, what I'm doing is different, until either consequences change us or we stand before God and he reveals you were wrong the whole time. What this ought to do is this list ought to make you afraid. You shouldn't look down on the people that break the laws that you don't break any more than they should look down on you for breaking the laws that they don't break. In fact, Clay mentioned a verse that I think is very helpful from, from the book of James, James 2.10. In fact, our Awana kids memorize this verse too. It says, he who is guilty of one law is guilty of all. He who is guilty of breaking part of God's law is breaking all of it. So, okay, congratulations, you haven't committed adultery. I guarantee you've told a lie at some point in your life. It doesn't matter which law you break. The point is you are a lawbreaker. And guys, do not miss this. When Paul says that the law is for the ungodly and the sinner, in a few verses, he's going to say, I am the chief of sinners. He is not calling other people sinners. He is holding himself up and saying, I broke the law in ways that you can't imagine. And I'm far worse than all of these things that I have just listed. 
Paul believed that his own sins were uglier and more deadly than any of the sins that he listed in verses 9 and 10. And in fact, I would encourage you, take a second, use your imaginations for a minute. Imagine the worst sinner you can think of. And and if we're honest, we should probably be imagining ourselves, right? Because we know the depths of our heart in ways that nobody else does. If I could see into your mind and know your thoughts, I probably wouldn't think much of you. And if you could see into my mind and know my thoughts, I know you wouldn't think much of me. But just for the sake of this exercise, we're all a little proud. We all like to look down on other people who are different from us. Imagine the worst sinner you can think of. Some terrible, abusive person or or, or maybe some some horrible terrorist or or some hateful religious hypocrite or, or whatever makes you angry. And then Paul says, I'm worse. Paul's not writing this list to look down his nose at homosexuals or slave traders. He's saying, friends, the reason the law condemns your sin is so that you recognize your need for the grace of God. Be honest with yourself, and instead of questioning God's law, recognize you're a sinner and cast yourself on the wide mercy of God. We must confront our own sins, or we will never know the grace of God and the depth of his love that relieves our fears. So my first point this morning is that the law is good. My second point is that the law teaches our hearts to fear. And my third point is God relieves our fears. Christianity is not a religion where you stay anxious, always afraid of God. It's not a faith where you should believe that God is always angry with you. Quite the opposite. Christianity is a faith that teaches that the Father loved you while you were still in sin. And sent his son to die for you. There's no greater love than someone laying his life down so that you can live. And that's God's love for you. So verse 11, look at how Paul describes the gospel that he preaches. Paul says that the law is for the, the sinner, for the ungodly For all the people who break all of these laws and anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul says, sound doctrine and right living are in accordance with the gospel. There's no good news unless you understand that you're a sinner in need of good news. So if we try to make Christianity more popular by ignoring sins that are popular in our culture, we have cut off all recognition that we need God's grace. But instead, if we faithfully preach that God is righteously angry with sinners and that there is a reason to fear him, then the grace of God quenches our thirst, feeds our souls, and makes us aware that God in his mercy has provided a way for guilty sinners to be saved. And this is the glory of God. 
I began this message talking about the love of God at some length, and I reminded you of how Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost, that he was known as a friend of sinners. He is known as the shepherd that left the 90 and 9 and went and found the wayward sheep and brought it back. And, and it wasn't like the father said, what'd you do that for? The father rejoiced that the lost sheep was found. And maybe you thought, man, why didn't you talk about the prodigal son at all? Here's why. Because I want you to know as we leave this message that the father is the God who welcomes the prodigal home. He is the God that not just welcomes, but runs to meet the prodigal. He is the God full of love and mercy and grace. And it's the glory of God to run and embrace the repentant sinner. Listen to how Paul describes this. He's talking about glory. He says that the good news that Christ died for our sins is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which he'd been entrusted. Friends, glory is something that shows the amazing value of a thing. Okay, so the glory of a GTO is in peeled rubber and the smell of burnt rubber. It lets you know, man, that's a sweet engine. It's a powerful car. It's a lot of fun. The glory of a teacher is in students that not only learn their material, but enjoy it and go on and surpass you. And the glory of our holy and righteous God is that he loves guilty people. And he's not grouchy as the gospel is proclaimed. He's not angry saying, shape up people or I'm going to let you have it. He is joyfully welcoming repentant sinners home. Friends, if you are a Christian today, there was a party in heaven when you believed the gospel. Have you thought about that? About the real joy that the father had? He wasn't like, man, I'm so glad they finally got their act together. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't like your mom and dad are when you come home and, and you've been out past curfew or whatever. He is so happy. He is full of joy, and it's his glory. It's the thing that shows his character and his love to announce this good news to lawbreakers that there is amnesty available, that Christ has paid your debt so that people like Clay, who was never caught for speeding or doing anything dumb, can be totally forgiven before a holy and a righteous God for speeding and for anything else he's ever done or you've ever done. So friends, what do we do with this message? Well, well, a couple of things. If you're one of those people that Chris mentioned and you're not sure about what you think of Jesus or what you need to do next, seek God's mercy personally. To the best of your ability, confess your sins to him in prayer and ask for his forgiveness and begin to follow him. Follow him through obedient baptism. Baptism says, I'm a sinner, and I died with Jesus, and he gave me his life. It's the public expression of faith. So friends, if you've never sought God's mercy, recognize your sin and seek it today. Number two, and this is more for Christians, if you are ashamed of parts of God's law, and embarrassed when Christians point to the sins that are in the scriptures, 
be careful. Be careful. Recognize the law's goodness. That the law is not something to be ashamed of when it's used rightly. Now certainly, if we're beating people up with it and acting like we're better, that's a sin. And that's something that Paul would have condemned too. But when the law is used to call guilty people to faith in Jesus, that's a right use. It pleases God. Faithful preaching that is honest about sin is good preaching. Preachers that never mention sin are unfaithful and will leave people to die in their sins. So recognize the goodness of the law. Finally, for believers, if you look around at the world, and I mentioned this is a possibility at the beginning of the message, and if your feelings towards the people that you would label as sinners, have grown frustrated and hateful. And in our political climate, it, it is impossible to avoid this. We are a universally angry people on both sides of the aisle. And if you have grown frustrated and angry towards sinners, you need to repent for your attitude. Because you are told to give grace the same way God gave you grace. So be patient with those who don't know Jesus yet. Recognize at any time, they could have their eyes opened and be a brother or sister in Christ. Recognize your attitude towards someone else says a lot about how you've received grace from God. And so be careful when you look at people who are living in sin and instead of feeling love for them and wanting them to know the grace of God, you write them off as someone who is a problem today. Friends, if you're a believer, repent of that kind of judgmental attitude. And if you have forgotten how deeply God loves you, I want to invite you today to believe his promises. He rejoiced over you when you first believed and he is forever your loving father and nothing will change that. And so as we close the service today, I want to invite you to praise him. Praise him with your whole heart for the glory that was on display when he forgave your sins. Let's pray. Father, I praise you that the law was not your final word. That while you revealed our sin, you provided a savior. Father, I ask for grace that relieves our fears completely. That assures us of your faithful, steadfast love that will never turn away. Pray that you'd fill our hearts with your praise today. It's in Jesus' name.